so I'm just really pleased for everyone that's been able to join us. Um, we're going to try, I think, um, and do um, a chat every week at around seven o'clock on Tuesdays. Um, and the idea is that we're going to do something live. We're going to put it on YouTube. It's streamed, obviously, across LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Um, we're going to put this on audio format, which is well, which is going to be great. Um, and then we're going to clip out a few particular sections as well of Omar probably speaking more sense than me. Um, and we thought we'd actually start off with um, a pretty interesting topic, bearing in mind um, the immediacy of what's going on in the in the wider football takeover market at the moment. Um, but before I sort of lead Omar into the first question, um, just in case people aren't sort of aware of what either of us do, <laughs> I thought it might be worthwhile, Omar, do you want to just briefly tell um, everyone, I guess, what, what you do and your title, because I think you've probably got the best title, uh, job title in uh, in the football industry, to be fair. Yeah, um, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, so I'm Chief Intelligence Officer at uh, 21st Club, and we're a, a sports intelligence agency uh, working with uh, rights holders, clubs, brands, media uh, agencies, uh, helping, them with, helping them with their mid to long term strategy and all underpinned by the use of, uh, of analytics uh, to do that. And obviously this topic is, is very interesting for us because we work alongside a lot of investors uh, who are looking at football clubs and help them A, work out whether they want to invest in football, uh, B, where they want to invest and C, and then uh, evaluate the risks uh, when they do invest. So. Yeah, this is a topic very close to our hearts and it's a, it's a real busy area at the moment. So, um, yeah, looking forward to getting our, our teeth stuck into it. And very briefly, in case anyone um, isn't aware of the type of stuff I do, so I'm um, yeah, sports and football lawyer at Sheridan's and I usually work um, playing uh, an agency side, although we have worked, actually, Omar and myself have worked on a couple of um, um, takeovers over the last few years as well, which has been great to work with with 21st Club on. So um, before we get going on a particular bit of questions, um, or rather uh, questions to Omar, if I just mention also, please feel free just to put your questions um, in the chat. Um, we'll try and um, answer as many as we can. We'll have a, maybe a conversation for 10 to 15 minutes tops. And when you're sick of hearing our voices, um, we'll try and answer some of your questions as well at the same time. So. I think Omar, in, in terms of first, um, first sort of principles and first um, overarching ideas from a, a macro perspective, um, US takeovers, there's always been US owners or over the last 15, 20 years, US owners in, in UK and European football. Why do you think that this issue or rather this topic has become um, such a live, um, a live point at the moment? Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a trend. Uh, almost every day you're seeing uh, some news report about American investment interested not just in, in English football clubs, which, as he said, has been the case probably for, for a little bit of time now, but but actually all over Europe. Uh, and I'm indebted actually to our America's MD, MD uh, AJ Swoboda, who, who does a lot of work with American investors. He's based out in, in San Francisco. Um, he's done a lot of kind of thinking and, and research into this. And I think... Um, one of the things that we're seeing now is obviously historically European sports models have been very different um, to American sports models. Um, so Amer the American sports model is literally a business model. It's all about um, you know growing the value of, of the franchise, whereas the European model is about rising up the league table, winning trophies, pure meritocracy, promotion, relegation, and so on. Um, and so this model over here, that the American one, was lend itself very much to 
you know, sustainable revenue streams, you know, not volatile, not a volatile approach to, to running a business. Um, and the, the meritocratic European model with all its ups and downs was very much not that. Um, but what we have seen, I think, in the last 10 years or so is more sustainability coming into football. Um, part of that is better financial regulations, which plays a big part of it. If you look at UEFA's reports, the profitability of European clubs has is, is really um, shot up over the last, last 10 years. Uh, and so an owner comes in now look and sees that it's not just this loss-making venture. And, and these US owners, as you well know, uh, Daniel, they're, they're smart. They, they come in, it's smart money, and they're not just going to come in and throw money at, at a problem. They're going to think about it in a much more sophisticated way. So, yeah, there's a lot more of a kind of, um, I guess, switched-on approach, and they're beginning to see these parallels with um, with the what they have stateside. And I think the what I would say there is that what I've seen over the years, maybe the last decade or so of working more innately in the intimately in the the football space and football takeover space as well, is the type of questions that used to be asked of me were why isn't there any any particular um, cost control regulation? And um, on one side, and then on the flip side, which is where do you think broadcasting revenues can go? Because that's obviously the the regular reoccurring income. And and where is the appetite for um, for people to pay subscription revenues? And now, what seems to have evolved the conversation, obviously, which is. Um, you know, how do we think about valuation? We can talk about that in a bit, where you have quite now stringent cost control provisions, if it's FFP, if it's the uh, sustainability and profitability regulations in the Premier League, if it's now the wage caps um, that are in place in League One and League Two, um, you've got a much more sophisticated set of cost controls, which which weren't there um, a, decade, a decade ago or so. So do you, do you think if we then take it into a little bit of the macro um, um, or rather micro perspective, that um, there's been a trend of um, greater US ownership or greater US interest in European club takeovers because of COVID and everything that has um, um, escalated as a result. Yeah, I think so. And I think as we get on to valuations a bit later, COVID clearly depresses valuations. Um, you know, clubs, are, a lot of them are, are, are struggling, particularly to go down the leagues or go outside the, the major European leagues. And, you know, if you look at, if you think about football club valuations um, and the, 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 the prices that football clubs go for, so Newcastle, you know, reported in the region of about 300 to 500 million in, in the summer. Newcastle are a massive club. And for an American investor, they're looking at that and saying, OK, we've got a huge brand here. In the US, to get a, a club or a franchise of that size, you're paying billions. Um, and so that's why it's so attractive. And, and that's kind of increased with, um, uh, with COVID. So I think, um, I think what people are seeing with COVID as well is not just the, the opportunity for, for cheaper clubs. It's also the possible ramifications of it in terms of regulation, which obviously we've spoken about in that. You know, the immediate consequence in the EFL of, of COVID was was um, salary caps, which, again, American investors are so familiar with. They're very used to running um, sports teams that essentially have growing revenues and are able to kind of control their costs over time. Uh, and for now, at least League One and League Two, OK, the revenues might not be taking off, but at least you can control the one thing that, that you want to be able to control. So, yes, yeah, certainly, um, certainly that's that's a big driver. Um, but yeah, I, I'm kind of interested in some of the conversations you've had. I know you're close to, to a number of US investors. Are they 
particularly the ones maybe that are in in football at the moment are they seeing things differently with covid are they seeing the opportunity to expand their networks or is it just a case of keeping keeping the lights on at the moment well i think it's a few things is the truth and it's some things that we've talked about previously on some of our um youtube chats which is um opportunity um opportunity and cost control really opportunity being is there an opportunity to do something not quite akin to what City Football Group are doing? Far from it, because um, that type of scale is just on a on another level. But is there opportunity if there is um, cash available and pretty liquid cash available to be able to to do things? It might not be in the UK market. It might be in other particular um, growth markets. For example, you know Portugal. Uh, might it be Scandinavia? Might it be Belgium for work permit um, uh, particularities outside of for outside for non-EU players? Um, it might also be that um, you know even places like Gibraltar. <laughs> I know it's an odd one, but in the same way, you know how many clubs are there to potentially get European places? Is the is the truth mm. of one um, brief example? So. Um, I also think the the interesting element is how things are necessarily being funded, really. I mean, if we look at the brief history of US ownership of at least UK clubs, as we were doing before this talk, you know, if we look at um, Ellis Short, Randy Lerner, FSG and the Glazers, actually, there's a quite a, um, a disparity between um, approaches um, is the truth. We're coming up to sort of 10 years, over 10 years of FSG ownership of, of Liverpool, much longer for the Glazers, but their approach to financing couldn't be more um, you know, diverse is the truth. Um, so I think one of bearing that in mind, um, I think one of the things that um, US owners and other owners are considering now is, are there undervalued assets just in 2010 for very different reasons? Liverpool was an extremely undervalued asset, of just over mm -hmm. 250 million pounds. Are there opportunities now across Europe to find value that otherwise might not necessarily be the case? I'm not sure what your thoughts on that, maybe. Yeah, I, th I think that definitely is. It's really interesting, you know, mentioning Ellis Short, Randy. I think you can almost, you can take the Liverpool and Man United examples as a bit different because they're just massive clubs and they, um, you know, I think any investor from anywhere in the world is going to be interested in, in those clubs. I think if you take the Sunderland and, and Villa examples, you know, investments in the kind of late-ish noughties, early early 2010s, Premier, that's when Premier League um, media rights was was kind of hockey stick growth. And I think for an American investor looking at that, you're looking at the total global landscape of media rights. The Premier League was clearly the one that was that was shooting up much quicker. Um, and now since then, we've obviously seen media rights plateau, and yet we're seeing this kind of increase in, in, in interest, which is interesting because, you know, as you say, that, that um, you know, normally investors will be backing out at this stage because, you know, what, what is there to grow? But I think you're talking about undervalued assets. I think what they're seeing is, is certain inefficiencies that exist within um, the English or, or European football system. I think one of them is um, on the commercial side of, of clubs and typically you know these clubs aren't run um, in the same way that US sports teams are in terms of their ability to monetize pretty much anything and everything that they do about their their club and I think the other one as well is inefficiency on some of the kind of sporting operations side so take recruitment um, you know you if you look at US sports franchises they're very analytics driven they're very sophisticated or well, a lot of them are very sophisticated in the way that they they run their operations. They're still uh, European football is still kind of reaching that level of maturity, and there's we're seeing. I mean, you mentioned FSG have, have kind of achieved a competitive edge through um, 
through finding you know a better way of recruiting players is just one example and and obviously Liverpool have done very well off the back of that um so yeah there is there is clearly a kind of a shift and an emphasis now on not just kind of riding the wave of, of media rights growth but actually seeking where these these undervalued opportunities exist and i think um my view then on what we can sort of um pivot into there is if we're talking about inefficiencies and the value, um, whatever the, the the label, the nuanced label is, um, you know, in our experience, and I know it'll be your experience as well, you know, the main sticking point on almost everything is cost, value, um, uh, and, and, and enterprise value in, to a degree. And the thing that always I found crazy about football club um, valuations to a degree is, you know, you can um, have a player like Wambasaka move to United from Crystal Palace um, for a huge amount of money. It was at around 50 million pounds, I believe. Now, um, in the same way, for example, Lukaku's at Everton and moves um, to United, I think, wasn't it, for however many, or you know, a huge amount of money, 70, 75 million, if I remember correctly. Um, you know, three or four of those huge transfers um, could effectively make up the value of most Premier League, lower, lower Premier League teams. You know, in your experience of valuing on-field and off-field in a way, the squad, but also the enterprise value, you know, what what's what's the typical approach, or what are the type of things that that potential ownership groups would be would be considering? Yeah, yeah, really, really good question. I think um, it's important to divorce the squad value from the, the valuation of the club because I think. Um, I think that's a natural inclination, isn't it, to think about those um, the players and, and go, oh, he's worth X, and by sum all the value of my players, I've got three hundred million pounds in assets. But if you sold all those players for three hundred million pounds, you don't have a three hundred million pound football club anymore. So it's not, it, you know, you know, you're not. Um, it's not really. It's not really a tangible value you can realise um, in the in the club. Whereas um, the valuation of the club itself is something something entirely different. Um, so yeah, the valuation of players you can do on the one hand, the valuation of the club that it's done, and, and you'll know this having been kind of close to these negotiations. It's it's still a very well. What's the what's the benchmark in the marketplace? What's this other club sold for? What um, what can we sell it for? Um, you know, there's no there's no kind of even us working analytics. We have an approach um, to valuing football clubs that looks at things like um, you know the. The context around the club you know is it in a big city is it um you know has it got kind of a big catchment area is it generating revenue what sustainable revenue has it got all those kind of things um but it's certainly not not an exact science and um as i know you know you know often if that's the sticking point it's the valuation and you find i think you find that a lot at the moment with covid is that the the sellers are still kind of anchored on the prices that they had pre-covid on the basis that look Fans are going to return to stadiums at some point. Everything will be hunky dory again, you know, and, and and European football will be back on its feet. Whereas obviously the buyers are saying, well, um, you know, I've got to get a discount if I'm buying it in the next next couple of years at least. So, yeah, I think um, because there is no science to it, it can actually be quite hard to to get a deal done for what are obviously massive massive clubs. And I think the the bit there as well is. You know, things can change. Obviously, a, a takeover is quite the dynamic process, as, as you know as well. Which is, you know, something in the due diligence throws up something that um, might be a bigger liability than they believed, or they're owed uh, a club is owed less money because they've securitized future monies, or whatever else it might be. And obviously, you know, 
the the, the major major difference uh, between the the U.S. closed um, uh, model and the European pyramid structure is you know that that relegation, the relegation and promotion variable really, and that goes so much into the pie as to um, the the you know the the inherent risk of um, of buying and taking over a club depending on where that club is in the in the pyramid and the you know the, the fluid nature of um, how good or bad a season might be could have a huge impact on um, on things more generally. So um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Crudely, the revenue multiples for a bottom half Premier League club would be between one point two and one point seven. So and that's a reflection of the fact that that revenue that they have is not secure in in twelve months time. You know, you could be earning just from one hundred million in. TV money, uh, money to you know three million plus parachute payments of solidarity and so on. Um, whereas for a top end Premier League club, you're looking you know much more in the region of kind of three, four, potentially even ten. I mean, we saw Man City's valuation with with the Silver Lake investment was, was huge. Um, so that just shows, as you say, the discount for for relegation, which you would never want to take away from European football because that's what makes it so compelling and so great. But that's the thing I think that scares scares many investors. No, it's true. Well, we're almost uh, um, talking for the best part of twenty minutes now. So what I'm going to do is um, I'm not sure if you can see the questions that have yeah. come in. Can you see? Can you see them all right? Yeah, I can see them. Yeah, perfect. Is there anyone particularly you want to to take? I'm just going to start at the top. Um, Gordon was asking a question about the Newcastle takeover and why do Arabic investors wouldn't finally buy the club? Um, I think the short answer, at least based on what my understanding of the Newcastle takeover was, um, the, the Premier League and the the actual um, body within the Premier League that was effectively analysing the owners and directors test, the objective test, um, weren't necessarily convinced by the information that um, the prospective buyer had, um, uh, had provided to them at that particular time. And as a result, my understanding, at least from all the public uh, reporting, was that um, the Premier League actually um, suggested that um, the buyer go to independent arbitration to ensure uh, an independent arbitrator could it could be demonstrated to them that they were actually going to pass the the objective criteria, and that at the time was, I believe, rejected by um, the buyer. So, you know, it's difficult to know um, what's um, um, accurate reporting or not because we're only basing it on public information. But that that seemed to be where they got to at least on the the owners and directors test, which is obviously um, been a stumbling point from that point. Yeah. Uh, I can see a question here on, is there, are we going to say a more Americanized approach in relation to commercialization of, of clubs? Um, I think in, in a word, yes. Um, you know, I think, I think there is a fine line to be tread though. And I think um, one of the things with, with European clubs is that there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of culture and history to, to respect. And also, um, you know, I think one of the things we, we don't want to be seeing in European football is, as kind of football fans is this kind of slapping of logos everywhere and this kind of um, crude uh, crude approach to, uh, to commercialising the club. I think these clubs are institutions, they're communities, they've got, they've got purposes, they've got, um, you know, a reason for being other than, than making money. And I think that's where, that's where the smart, um owners and investors will come in and and not just kind of slap a logo everywhere they'll actually kind of think about how how can i make this club genuinely more valuable 
uh, in not just kind of winning more football matches, but more valuable to the community, more valuable globally to, to its fans. And I think I think that's the that's the approach clubs or, or investors have got to take rather than a kind of very crude commercial approach. I was going to take one from JH27, which was um, when City had the takeover, the perception was bad, but the owners and people at the club know what they're doing, especially football-wise, which I don't see American investors having much knowledge of. See, I'm, I'm not necessarily so sure about the, the sort of generalization of American investors not knowing much of. I mean, um, if we take a couple of very good examples, being Liverpool being one, for example, you know, um, uh, Mr. Henry and et al. might not have known too much about um, the intricacies of football come 2008 or nine before they took over the club, but pretty quickly surrounding themselves with the right people and putting a pretty robust action plan in place, um, recruiting well on and off, and then putting that infrastructure, that sort of human infrastructure in place at the, at the top on and off the pitch. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean everyone needs to know every little thing about nuance about the industry but you need to make sure you find people with the right skill set to be able to complement um, those skills. So I think in terms of, you know, just stating, you know, UK guys understand how things work and American or Asian guys don't because um, they haven't lived and breathed it for their li own lives isn't, isn't, is, is a bit of an oversimplification of things because I've met tons of very, very highly intelligent, um, non English individuals that get the industry inside out and actually are sometimes more perceptive than, um, than a lot of people think. Yeah, I think um, owners who aren't familiar with the sport often ask uh, what are deemed to be silly questions, but the silly questions are sometimes the ones that elicit the most interesting answers. You know, an owner might come in, you know, if I think about some of the kind of research we've done before, an owner might come in and let's say recruitment teams historically always recruited English players or players from the Premier League, an owner might come in, oh, why do we recruit from the Premier League? And then they might ask more questions off the back of that. And eventually you dig into it and you realise actually maybe Premier League experience is overvalued, um, for example, which is something that we we found. Um, so yes, it's surrounding yourself with the right people, 100% important, but actually continuing to ask those annoying, dumb questions. I think the best owners, best owners do that and uh, are kind of very open about their, their ignorance and, and use it as a means to to pick holes in the way that things have always been done. Any particular questions that you want to look to Omar there? Otherwise I can maybe do one more. There you go for another one, yeah. There's a good one by Gordon there just briefly on multi-club ownership and Watford. Mm. Um, maybe we can actually do another session on that because I think that's actually a really great topic to, to dig into in more detail. And um, the question is how difficult is it to, for an owner to manage different clubs in different territories? The answer is, very difficult unless you have a pretty strong infrastructure um, and vision in place. Um, and then from a regulatory perspective, it can sometimes be difficult as per the ENIC case and as per the, the RB cases as well that UEFA had to look at, which was whether um, clubs with um, common ownership or perceived common ownership could play each other in the same competition and whether that would lead to integrity of competition issues. So um, yeah, the short answer is it can be difficult without pretty good infrastructure in place, but the benefits and economies of scale that can be brought to bear when you have um, one central fulcrum, uh, one particular purpose, and then a number of hugely talented and skilled operators that can work across clubs can bring a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of skills to the table. Yeah, I think we could easily have an hour session, well, probably multiple hour session on multi-club ownership. But I think, um, yeah, it's it's 
great in principle. I think in practice, a lot of a lot of clubs have found it really hard. Um, and you running one club is hard enough. I think um, running multiple and having them all speak to each other is um, is, a, is a lot a lot harder than that, especially with the the short term nature of football and the decisions that need to be made on a on a daily basis that maybe don't exist in any other kind of industry. So, yeah, I look forward to that chat at least. I might put you on the spot, Omar, as well, if that's okay with one question that's come in from um, a pal of mine, Jack Green. Um, he's asked, and it's actually a really tr- difficult one is the answer, um, he asked, how would you propose protecting smaller clubs from Wigan-type situations where the owners pull the plug without warning but without putting off future buyers by having to put large amounts of money in an escrow? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, I, mean, I wouldn't be an expert on, on financial regulations, but... Yeah, you've got to be able to um, attract the right kind of owners um, to, to English football, to European football, and um, and go through the pro- kind of proper checks and balances on that. Um, that's ultimately what it is. I think um, having, you know, one of, one of the kind of attractive elements, I guess, of the German model is that you've got fan fan ownership that can that can take a view on these kind of things, and, and fans will always have um, the best interests of, of the club at heart. Um, but yeah, it's you know what's what's happened at Wigan's horrendous, really, and you wouldn't wish it on anyone. And the only the only kind of obvious solution that strikes me is having um, you know a, a much a, a process that uh, protects clubs from from those kind of investors. I would just say briefly on there as well, and sorry for putting you on the spot. <laughs> was um, I think the owners and directors test has to be. Um, um, bulked up to a degree is that I think a lot of the issues seem to be the owners and directors test as the gateway into football, i.e. if you pass these objective criteria you're in and then there aren't too many other targets that you have to adhere to uh, actively throughout the process. I think a lot of the time, a lot of the stuff seems to be the, the, the active management of the club season after season. Now, um, there's questions about wage caps and we can have a, make a discussion about that another day as well, which would be quite cool. But um, yeah, this is the, the, the ongoing sustainability of the club, you know, are they mortgaging assets? Are they doing particular things? Are they securitizing stuff? Um, are, you know, are odd things necessarily happen means that there needs to almost be ongoing governance audits, I think, to ensure that that type of Wigan-esque approach can't necessarily happen. But in the end, you, you, it's, I think it's almost impossible to guard against every eventuality, but what regulation usually does is shore up particular instances that have happened before to ensure that they can't happen again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, saw, I saw one question as well on, um, I can't remember who sent it in, on, on American investment in, in Serie A, uh, having noticed the, the increased there, obviously Roma, Fiorentina, I think a couple of other clubs as well, Parma. Um, and it, it, asking, is that is that the trend that's going to happen? I think, Serie A is fascinating to me at the moment. There's obviously conversations around investment in in, uh, in the league and the media rights in, in the league. Um, you know, it is a sleeping giant. Uh, our models rate as the fourth fourth best te- fourth best league in um, in world football. But if you go back what twenty years, twenty five years, it was comfortably the best. It was the place to go. So it's very much a sleeping giant. I think the fact that um, it is attracting this investment um, is is recognising the fact that the league is beginning to professionalise. And that you know, at its natural level, Italian football should be should arguably be ahead of, or certainly be ahead of Germany. I think probably ahead of Spain as well, and competing with um, with the Premier League. Um, and so that's why I think a lot of people are seeing the opportunity to get in at the ground floor here, yeah. as well as as we've sort of been reported whether there's actually external 
um, venture capitalist or other money that is actually looking to buy a stake in what would be the commercial arm of Syria by the looks of it as well, in order for some type of capital injection, which is quite an interesting model as well. Um, yeah, and it, it could be a route that other leagues other leagues go down, which, uh, which again might be another conversation, another, another show. And I might just mention a, a good point that um, Faz has made, actually. Um, Faz has, has said um, she thinks that sustainability in this climate is key to changing the model, and that might be the way forward. And I think that's actually, you know, right to it. It is actually right. It's just how you... Um, go from um, the theory of sustainability to what the regulations would look like in practice. And actually, the UEFA regulations, the Premier League regulations, the Football League regulations have all changed as a result of COVID, um, mm. as a reaction to COVID to a degree, um, to cater for certain situations. And it looks likely at some point that the, the championship might um, impose some type of um, salary cap by the sounds of it too, by what's being reported maybe we talk about project big picture another day as well but that you know the amount of regulatory possible proposals on the table there is is monumental um from from my reading of it so um well loads of questions there generally any other questions omar that you like the look of well i was just going to say on that sustainability piece if you don't mind a little a little plug um to myself and uh, uh my colleague ben marlow written a piece in sport business um today that looks at that sustainability piece in, in the EFL uh, and specifically, you know, some of the challenges that English football has with wealth concentrated at the top and, and the incentives um, that drives, I guess, lower down the pyramid and how you can create a more sustainable environment um, for, for EFL clubs. And we've got we've got a few ideas that I'll, I'll let people, I'll let folks read the, the piece. But uh, certainly, I think if you don't have sustainable football clubs at that level, then you're not going to attract investment. The clubs aren't going to be able to kind of rise up the pyramid um, and you're going to end up having this kind of growing and growing gap between the, the haves and have not. And on that point, we're at half past. Um, we've had some great questions uh, and some really good um, yeah, discussion on that. So Omar, firstly, appreciate all your time to, to come on. We're hopefully going to make this a, a weekly occurrence. Um, if anyone wants to tweet or message us for particular topics that um, they actually want discussed for our sessions, then um, that'd be great. Um, Omar, do you want to tell everyone where they can follow you online for all of your, your insights? Yeah, it's uh, at Omar Chowdhury on, uh, on Twitter. That's where I mostly am. Um, and yeah, and at 21st Club uh, for insights from our, from our football team. Fantastic. And then I'm um, yeah, at football law across a variety of different channels, including TikTok, although I don't dance or sing, you'll be pleased to know no more. Um, on that note, yeah, thanks everyone for, for joining. We're going to put this out as a, a podcast as well. Um, and then hopefully everyone can join us um, this time next week, half an hour until Champions League matches. Omar, anything to look out for um, tonight? Uh, we can put, I can put disclaimer that we're both Liverpool fans. So yeah, I think we can expect goals, um, goals in the Atalanta Liverpool game. I uh, yeah, we were chatting pre-show. I think that could be a little bit Roma Liverpool uh, 20, 2018 That so basically expect a nil nil. <laughs> <laughs> great, to, um, great to chat, and um, we'll see everybody this time next week. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundeal Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, 
you'll probably also like my book Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by John Crell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.